First Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse one, the word of God says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, turn the page to verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. For many Christians and likely for most of you, the intensity of your prayer life waxes and wanes. And it waxes and wanes based on your circumstances. So when you are, when you are in, uh, in, in need, when your needs are great, and stress is high or challenges are overwhelming, these, those things tend to be moments in your life that ratchet up, increase the intensity of your prayer life. And you likely can look back on a moment in your life when it was great stress, difficulty, maybe you didn't know what, was, what to do, and you'll, you'll, you'll recognize that in those moments, you prayed rather intensely. And then there are those moments in life that are l easy. Resources are plentiful. There's no major challenge. You're not stressed in any way. And unfortunately, in those times, you tend to allow your, the, at least the intensity and oftentimes the, the volume or the amount of your prayer to diminish. I wish... I desperately wish that my prayer intensity was as great in times of peace as it is in times of stress. But I understand why times of, uh, I understand why times of difficulty produce more prayer. It is in these moments that you are most aware of your needs and most attentive to who can actually help. There's grace when God allows you to understand and know how utterly dependent you are on his provision and his help. Chapter two begins with Paul's instructions to Timothy on the proper, begins, begins Paul's instructions to Timothy on the proper order of the church. But before he begins to get into the, the details of how the church should be structured and the roles that each should play within the church, he addresses these issues first of prayer and then of the, the centrality of the gospel of salvation, the ransom of Jesus for our sins. This morning, I want to give attention to the first, the place of prayer in the life of the church. You may remember learning in elementary school English class to look for the, the what, the who, and the how, and the why. Likewise, this morning, as we consider prayer, I, I want us to look at the, the, the how we're to pray, and the why we are to pray, and the, and, 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 and the what we are to pray, and, and those sort of 
questions. And so to that end, here's how we're going to divide our time. We're going to start with what to pray versus the first half of verse one. And then uh, the second half of verse one and verse two, uh, who do we pray for? And then from uh, the second half of verse two and verse eight, how and why we are uh, to pray. So let's begin first part of verse one with what to pray. <laughs> now, this may seem somewhat elementary, simplistic, but friends, I, I don't think when we approach something in Scripture that's elementary or simplistic, we ought to ignore it because frankly, in any endeavor that you do, you need to often return to the, to the basics, to the fundamentals, uh, to, to, to remember, to refocus, to retrain, and to understand why you do everything else. And so as we begin with the fundamentals of prayer, what do we pray for? Look with me in the beginning of verse 1, where, where Paul simply gives uh, some, some, some words here. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. What do we pray for? Well, we first begin for praying for needs. We pray for needs. And in the opening words of verse one, Paul instructs Timothy to pray in these four ways. Uh, and at least three of them are about needs. Of the four words used to describe how we are to pray, uh, three have very similar meanings. So the first three, the, the, the meanings are so similar that depending on your translation, uh, they, they are trying to capture this meaning with, with different words. Not to get too deep into the weeds, but the first word that is translated in the ESV and the KJV as supplications, uh, it, it means to uh, that, that which is asked with urgency or, or based on pursue, uh, pers uh, 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 understood need, a request, a plea, a beg, if you will, for help. NAS, uh, New American Standard, translates it as entreaties. Uh, NIV, request. The Holman uses the word petitions. And then the second word that Paul uses, most translations just translate as prayers. And, and as for the casual reader, it may seem that there's no difference between these things. So petitions, requests, prayers, that doesn't seem to be a whole lot of difference between the two words. But, but understand, I, Paul uses these words with in, in, intentionality. The second word that's translated as prayers is, is a more common, more general word for regular praying. Speaking to God, talking to God, expressing your needs to God, asking God uh, for help or asking God uh, to lead. The first word that Paul uses, uh, supplications is what the ESV translates it, has a much more intense underlining of it, to beg, to plead for something. The point is, is that your prayer life should include both types of requests. Your prayer life should include continual communication with God. That, that second word, prayers. You should continually be praying, praying about every, uh, every element of your life, seeking God's leadership in every area of your life, constant, continual, regular. These are just the, 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 the breathing out and breathing in prayer life of your life, getting up in the morning and going to bed at night and, and praying in the middle of the day, those regular, continual prayers, expressing needs, asking God to give you help, asking God to give you leadership, those, those regular prayers of your life. There's a dangerous temptation to put too much value on the spectacular and special. All of us have sort of an, a, a, a deep desire to have 
moments that are life transforming, those big spectacular moments. And and I'm not saying those moments are bad. Significant experiences are, are special moments indeed. But, but faithful, a faithful life is not built on special moments. A faithful life is built on what you give yourself regularly to. I, I often use the example of getting healthy through what you eat. You will not get healthy by having one amazing meal. You're not going to get strong by having one amazing workout. No, getting strong, getting healthy, those things come from faithfulness, continualness, regularness in eating well and working out. Likewise, your, your prayer life baseline ought to be continual and regular prayer life. In a life filled with prayer, there will be moments when, you're, when your need or the crisis of the moment is so great that you're desperate for help. And who or what you turn to in those moments testifies to where your faith truly is. In these moments, when crisis comes, when you're desperate for something, these are the moments where your regular prayer life turns into supplications. That's the difference here. Supplications, pleas, entreaties, passionate, passionate requests of God. Now, brothers and sisters, God knows your needs and sees you in your distress. Amen. Be regular in prayer. And when you or another is in great need, run to the Lord for help with your supplications. Your prayer life needs both. As you pray for needs, that, that, that prayer life begins, that the, the making requests for your needs begins in just your regular praying. But there will be times of more intense times of supplications. Now add that to, to the third word that Paul uses, that the word intercession. And I would say we, we pray for others. The third word is intercession. It means to speak to someone on behalf of someone else. ESV, NIV, KJV all translates this as intercessions. To make things just a little bit confusing, NAS translates this as petitions. So if you're, if you're doing an interlinear study of the scripture, it gets a little confusing here. But the main idea of this third word is that you are, to, you, you are speaking to someone on behalf of someone else, about their needs and on their behalf. Now, Christians should and indeed do intercede for one another. A regular, major part of the ministry of this church is the ministry of intercession. When we gathered just, just an hour ago for a Sunday school class, we began our time in, in, in majority of our Sunday school classes with what are the needs in this class that we can pray for one another about. Now make hospital visits. When our deacons make hospital visits, we never leave the room without saying, what can I pray for you about and then pray for them? In our connection classes that we just finished up, we began every class with what are the prayer needs? And then just individual, in, uh, th this, this morning even, receiving texts from, from brothers and sisters in the church saying, here's some needs that we need praying for. And, and we took the opportunity right then to intercede on behalf of someone else for their needs. It's a major part of the ministry of our church. However, when you consider that the focus of this command is for all people. So 
Paul says these things, these, these petitions, these, these uh, supplications, these prayers, these intercessions, these thanksgivings are to be made for all people. When you consider this command is for all people, kings and persons in high positions, I think that to understand this best is to understand that the main idea of this word here of intercessions, praying for other people, is praying for those who, listen carefully, cannot pray for themselves. Now, I'm not taking anything away from the ministry of the church of praying for one another. Continue to do that. That's right and good to do. But I think the punch of this word is more than just praying for one another. I think the punch of this word is to pray for those who cannot pray for themselves. This is why. And this may even be unsettling to some of you who have not thought through this. God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous. It's a very unsettling truth. Never really thought deeply about it until I was on a ministry visit while uh, serving my very first church while we were in seminary. It was me and our senior pastor. We had gone to the home to visit uh, a family. their, Their children had been coming to our church, but the mother had not. And so we were there to, to visit with the mom. And, and not to give all the details of the situation, but, but the mom was not in any way um, embarrassed by or even hiding the fact of her open adultery and fornication. We're sitting in that home, and for, for the most part, the visit was going well. It was on sort of a positive note. And uh, the mom began to tell us how she and her boyfriend prayed every night before they went to bed. Now, I, I would learn later that when people meet with pastors, they often try, oftentimes try to make themselves be as most spiritual as they can. They put on their best spiritual foot, right? And that's what she was trying to do. And, and I'm sitting in that room thinking, well, this is a positive uh, uh, step. She, she's indicating that she de- desires to be pleasing to the Lord, and maybe we can build on this. My, my, my pastor was sitting beside me, and Alan had a very deep authoritative voice. Alan can make you, he could read the phone book and make you think he was telling you something really important. Alan, he was gracious and kind and gentle. He loved that church. He loved those people. He had a heart uh, to see people come to know the Lord. He would, he really was one of those guys who would go way out of the way to, to care for you and love you and minister to you. One of the best pastoral pastors I've ever seen and worked with. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is, a, this is a meeting going well. And the next thing I know, Alan, in that deep voice, he called her by name and he said, I'm glad to hear that you desire to be pleasing to God. But you need to understand, as long as you're living in sin, God does not and will not hear your prayer. Now, my first reaction to that was, Alan, you can't say that out loud. I was smart enough then to at least be quiet. It was offensive to me. I I grew up in the South like most of you. You don't say unkind things to people. Mama said if you can't say anything nice, what? Don't say anything at all. But as I have reflected on that conversation these many, many years since then, Alan was being more gracious to her than I was. 
I was willing not to point out the reality of her life, and Alan was willing to speak truth to her that she might come to repentance in Jesus. God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're not confident on this truth, I just want to tell you Scripture is unequivocal on this issue. Just some, some passages for you to consider. Proverbs 15 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Psalm 66 says, I, I, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 59, but your inquiries have, have made a separation, your, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. John verse, chapter 9, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. First Peter chapter 3. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You may say, well now, how does, how does anyone then come to the Lord if he doesn't hear the unrighteous? The Bible does say God turns his ear toward the repentant. James chapter 5, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is great power and as, as it is working. First John chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So where does that leave us? It means that those who remain in rebellious sin may perform the act of praying. They may bow their heads and close their eyes and put their hands together. And they may say words directed at God. But those who remain in rebellious sin, God will not listen until they repent. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have the privilege and ability to talk to God on behalf of those who cannot. Let the weight of that, that opportunity and the weight of that responsibility rest upon you this morning. Your family, your friends, your, your co-workers, your community, the world around us, you're, you're, you're walking amongst people every day who are oftentimes people who are offering prayers, but God is turning a deaf ear to them. But you, because you know Jesus, you've been bought by his blood, you have entrance into his kingdom through the son Jesus, you can pray, you can intercede on their behalf. On behalf of your family, your friends, your neighbors, your political leaders. One of the great ministries of the church and of individual Christians is to intercede on behalf of others, especially those, especially those who cannot pray for themselves. And then fourthly, Paul says, pray thanksgiving. The fourth word is thanksgiving, which is translated commonly amongst all translations. And it, and it, is, it is no small thing that Paul adds this command to how we are to pray. The command to be thankful is a recurring command throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. This week I was in a hospital room 
And uh, the person I was visiting was in great pain and was facing a procedure that was going to be unpleasant. And while we were visiting, the wife of the person I was visiting quoted 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I walked out of that hospital visit, and for the rest of the week, God just began to use that verse in my own life. They were working. They were working through how they could be thankful in that situation. And it wasn't a very pleasant situation. But they wanted to be thankful in all circumstances. And I thought, how can I be thankful in all circumstances? Thanksgiving is the response of one who has received grace. All those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus have known overflowing grace. And all those who through salvation have access to approach God in prayer with the confidence that he hears and will respond, have known overflowing grace. Therefore, thanksgiving, listen carefully, thanksgiving in prayer as an attitude of life is not something that must be mustered. In other words, what the command here is not that you grit your teeth and say, well, I'm going to be thankful no matter what. No, the idea here is that, that, th that thanksgiving is a natural characteristic of those who have been redeemed through the grace of Jesus. So in your intercession and in your prayer and in your supplication, let all of those things be given with the spirit and the attitude and the heart of thanksgiving. That's what we're to pray. Then Paul moves to who we are to pray for. And he says very simply at the end of verse 1, for all people. Paul says that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made for all people. The word that the ESV translates as people is the Greek word anthropon. It's the Greek word for which our English word anthropology is built on. And of course, anthropology is the study of mankind in all places at all times, the study of man. Anthropon is the generic word for mankind. So not specific tribe, not specific people, not in any way limited. It is the most broad word you can use, man, mankind. You're to pray for everybody is the idea there. In the positive, it is a command to pray for everyone. I think you understand that. That's pretty easily to grasp. In the negative, I think it is a command that your prayers cannot be restricted to your family, to your friends, to your community, to your tribe, to those you know, to those you like, to your church, or to only Christians. I think Paul is saying these things, supplications and prayers and, and intercessions and thanksgiving, these things can't be limited to those you know, you like, or appreciate, or can do something for you. No, these things need to be offered for all, for all mankind. I think there's one other thing to say about this command, to pray for all people. I think it's inherently evangelistic. What is the most important thing to pray for all people? I can tell you what it's not. It's not for the temporary relief of sickness and pain. I go into a lot of hospital rooms. A lot of the prayer requests that are, that are made of me begin with an illness or sickness or pain. 
But listen to me. The most important thing I can pray for you is not for temporary relief from sickness and pain. It's not for temporary postponement of death. The Bible says it's appointed to each of us once to die and then the judgment. So God may be gracious to you in this moment to postpone death, but that's not the greatest thing I can pray for you. It's not for temporary gain and fleeting wealth. Oh, what if God were to give you the world? Someday you'll die and somebody else will spend it. And it's not for temporary happiness or glee. Happiness is so fleeting. Emotional glee is so fleeting. No, the most important thing to pray for all people is that they would, they would receive the salvation, that would receive salvation from their sins that only comes through Jesus. The longer I walk with the Lord, not that I don't pray for sickness and for people to get better, but the more I'm just concerned with spiritual condition rather than physical condition. I think, I think I've squandered, to be honest, I think I've squandered too many opportunities just praying for temporary things when I should have been praying for eternal things. It is right and good to pray for these things like sickness and, and resource issues. Do not neglect to pray for the more important thing of salvation. Pray for all people that they would come to the saving knowledge of salvation in Jesus. And then Paul says that we're to pray for those in authority. So the second thing that the Bible instructs us to pray for is for kings and those in high positions. Now the first word translated as kings means just that, a hereditary monarchy. So someone who has uh, political power and can pass that power down to their, to their descendants. And you may say to me, well, I don't know any kings. And any king that you do know is not necessarily related to us and our nation. So in order to make sure that we understood how broad this was, Paul added an addition word to that. And he, but he, and he said, and, and all those who are in high positions. And when he says high positions, that word there literally means rank. So not necessarily political, but just those who are in high rank. So the point is that you should pray for those who have authority and power, persons who have governing authority and power. So baseline, from the United States president all the way down to your city council member to the dog catcher, if they have elected political power, pray for them. But it goes beyond that. When you think about just high rank, that that can mean persons who have authority at work. Pray for your boss. Pray for your CEO. Persons who have authority in the community. That might just be a, just a community leader, no, uh, no official title, but somebody who has, has influence in our community. Pray for them. Persons who have authority in the church. Oh, I hope you're praying for me and, and the leadership of our church and praying for those who have authority in your family. For children, that'd be praying for your parents. Wives, praying for your husbands. It must be said that this command to pray for those in authority is not dependent upon the person that you're praying for their righteousness. Listen to me carefully. If you were only going to pray for political leaders who are righteous, you just about could stop praying right now. Connect this, kings and those in high positions, with what he said before, all people. Paul didn't put any restriction. Remember, he and Timothy are living in a day where Rome, wicked Rome, was, was, the, was, the, uh, was the invading Uh, controlling uh, country over 
Israel. They were not happy about Rome being there. Paul says, pray for all people. Pray for kings and all those with high rank. You're commanded to pray for those of high rank regardless of your appreciation or agreement with their politics. Whether or not you, uh, they have or don't have very much leadership ability, whether they're, w- w- regardless of their relationship with Jesus and regardless of their righteousness, you are called to pray for them. Pray for those in leadership positions that they would come to salvation, that they would have wisdom in their decisions, that they would rule with righteousness in the fear of the living God, that God would use them for his purpose and for his glory. And the underlying theology of why we pray this way, regardless of whether or not they're righteous, regardless of whether or not we voted for them, regardless of whether or not we appreciate or like their policies, we, 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 we pray for them because the Bible teaches us that all rulers in every nation, in every place, no matter how high or how small, have their position by and because of the sovereignty of God. Daniel, who was living in captivity, having, having the, the nation of Israel overrun by Babylon, having to serve a pagan government, God says in, in Daniel chapter two, excuse me, Daniel chapter two, he changes times, speaking of God, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What God was saying is you may be living in Nebuchadnezzar's land, but Nebuchadnezzar lives under the sovereign will of the mighty God. And so who are we to pray for? We're to pray for those whom God has put in authority, whether we like them or not. Pray for those in positions of authority, trusting that they rule because God has placed them there for, his, for this season according to his will. So that's the what and the who. Lastly, I want to talk about the how and the why. At the second half of verse 2 and then verse 8, I want to talk about separately the how and the Why? Beginning with the why, we pray these things and for these people that we might live lives of obedience and faithfulness. Paul explains that we pray for all people and those in authority at the very end of verse 2 when he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The first two words, translated as peaceful and quiet, are indications of the state of your heart and attitude. To have a peaceful existence, have a peaceful attitude. Another word that sometimes is translated here, and it's a good word to use, is tranquil. Now, the point is not about the volume of your speech. So when I was preparing for this, what was running through my mind, I'm not going to name names today, but what was running through my mind are some faithful saints that I have known who were very loud. (laughs) Y'all thinking some of them right now. Those folks that when they enter the room, you you know they're there because they are so voluminous. Uh, I have been out in in restaurants in in the community and I have heard people and like, well, so-and-so's in the room, right? So this verse is not saying all of you Christians, you must be quietly speak. 
Those of you who like quiet may have, would, would want it to say that, but that's not what the verses say. The idea of peaceful and quiet is, is not about the volume of your speech, but more about the reality of your heart. Until Jesus returns, Christians will live in a world broken by sin and hostile to the truth of the gospel. So just think um, about where Paul and Timothy were. They were living in a hostile day that, that the government and the world around them hated what they were preaching. Though the Lord is in control of governments and leaders, you and I have very little influence over politics, the rise and fall of nations, national or global economics, and many other things. But we are to live a peaceful, a tranquil, a quiet attitude life. Those who trade in political entertainment, 24-hour news channels, attempt to stir up your emotions and disquiet your tranquil life. Pay attention. It doesn't really matter which channel you like to watch. Pay attention and listen for this word. Pay attention to how often they use outrage. They'll say a news story and they'll say, you should be outraged. Then the next story they'll, they'll share, and you should be outraged. And frankly, friends, if you became outraged every time a news commentator told you that you should be outraged, your life would be anything but peaceful and quiet. A life characterized by a peaceful and quiet spirit is a life given to prayer. Now, why could that be? And how could that be? Because the more you give prayerful attention to the Lord, the less you will worry about the world's temporary afflictions and troubles. Outrage flows from a heart that says things are not right and I've got to do something about it. Well, i got news for you. Until Jesus comes back, a lot of things are not going to be right. Politicians and government leaders are going to do things that are wicked. They have been doing that since Genesis 3. They will continue to do that until Jesus comes back. Quiet and peaceful doesn't mean that you never, have a, never participate in politics. It doesn't mean that, that you have to be uh, a wallflower or diminishing. But it does mean that as you walk through a world that is falling apart because of sin, your confidence is not in the next political leader. Your confidence is in the king who sits on the throne. That you're confident that God is in control. And so you're able to walk through a world that is in outrage and a world that is in conflict and a world that is in turmoil with a heart and an attitude of tranquility, a heart and attitude of being peaceful and quiet even as the world is turning upside down. That's why we pray. We pray for those our leaders, that God would move in their life to allow us to, to more easily live peaceful and quiet, tranquil in this world. But then secondly... How? Now, this is where I would encourage you to turn to verse 8. In my Bible, I have to turn the page. Verse 8 addresses the men of the church. And Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now here, Paul uses for men the, the word for adult male person of meritable age. So this is not 
mankind. This is not everybody. He really is drawing the, 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 the target down, limiting who's, he's, who he's addressing in verse 8 to the men of the church. Now, I want, you to be, I want to be careful here. This is not to say that women should not pray or have no command to pray. I think women, you are under as much command and obligation to pray as the men are. But this is to say that the men of the church have a specific command to be about the labor. I use that word intentionally, to be about the labor of praying. Now, just from my observation, it has seemed to me that more often the men of the church have not seen praying as very masculine. It's not what the men do. And it also has seemed to me that the women in the church are often more inclined to be about the labor of prayer. And this is antidotal, just my, my perspective on it, but over the course of my 20 plus years, all those in all the churches that I have, I have pastored that have led prayer ministries, to my knowledge and my memory, have all been women. Now, that's not bad. I'm not saying women shouldn't lead in that area. But I am saying men, Christian, godly, churchmen, this is your calling to be the prayer leaders of the church. Now, I say this not as a chastisement for men or women, I say this as a call and an encouragement to men. Your biblically instructed role in the church includes the leadership of the prayer ministry. In fact, you, you, you I think very safely could say your biblically commanded role in the church doesn't just include prayer, it begins with prayer. Because notice before Paul moves into other things like deacon leadership and elder leadership, he begins here, men, you should be the ones who are leading the charge for praying in the church, for making intercessions and supplications and prayers and, and thanksgiving. I'm very thankful for the heart and labor of many women over the years who have given themselves to prayer and encouraged the church to be more faithful in prayer. But to the men I want to say to you today, listen very carefully to the words of Scripture. The Word of God declares to you, in every place, the men should pray. In every place, the men should pray. With this charge to men, Paul gives a two-part instruction as to how to pray. The first is to pray with lifting holy hands. Now, this may be a direction about the physical position of how you're to pray. When you were teaching your children to pray as children, you probably told them to close their eyes, bow their heads, and put their hands together. I'm not saying that's, that's inappropriate with this passage, but that's, that's not the weight of what he's talking about with holy hands here. It's more about the condition of your heart before the Lord. So notice what he says. He says, I desire that men in every place should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
Hands are often used in English idioms about that, that are related to guilt and innocence. I just gathered a few to, to, to help you think through this. So if you've been caught red-handed, you've been caught in the act of doing something you ought not to have been doing. If you are said to have blood on your hands, then what somebody's saying about you is you're guilty or responsible for a death in some way. This is one that we've all been guilty of. If you, if you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar, I hope it's just cookies, but you've been caught stealing something or taking something that you shouldn't have. We see this in, in Scripture with Pilate. If you wash your hands of something, if you say, I wash my hands of that, you're saying, I, I don't want, I, I'm removing myself from any responsibility of the, of the guilt that may come from the continued action here. And if it is said of you that you have, that your hands are clean of something, it means you're guiltless, that you have no responsibility or no connection with that. So Paul says to you, me, he says, men, you should, you should pray everywhere with lifting up holy hands. And what he means by that is he's using hands in this way to say that, that, that you should pray with a righteous heart before the Lord. James 5 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's power when a righteous man, a righteous person, a righteous brother, a righteous sister prays before the Lord. And, and conversely, if you have sin in your life, confess it before the Lord and he will forgive you that your prayer may not be hindered. First John verse one says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. How do you have holy hands? That begins with repentance and confession and getting right before the Lord. And then secondly, Paul says that you are to pray without anger or quarreling. Now I think this is directed not as to our relationship before the Lord. I think this is directed to our relationship with one another that we should be right with God, holy hands, and right with one another. Now, this doesn't mean that there is never conflict. And it doesn't mean that all conflict is bad and all conflict hinders your prayer life. I would just remind you that even as Paul wrote these words, he was in conflict with the false teachers of the church and had instructed Timothy to, to confront them. And so had instructed Timothy to be in conflict with the false teachers. It does mean that your heart's desire should be in the, to be in right relationship with one another. We see this principle in Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus was teaching about temple worship. And he, he instructed his followers that if they go to the temple and they realize they have something against a brother, that they are to deal with it. Listen to what he says in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 verse 23. So if you're offering your, your, your gift at the altar and they're... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Paul instructed likewise the church in Rome to seek peace with one another when he wrote in, in chapter 12. If, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you're not right with God, indeed your prayer life will be hindered. And I think likewise, as far as it depends upon you, if you're not right with one another, 
your, your, your prayer life will equally be challenged. You must be about the work of prayer with hearts right before God and man. Isaiah said of the house of God that it was to be a house of prayer for all people. When Jesus confronted the money changers in the church, he quoted that verse, articulating and affirming again, God's house is to be a prayer for all people. Be about the work of prayer. 2018, I'm sure all of you read this, the summary of the National Defense Strategy of the United States of America came out. Did y'all read that? Okay, a few of you missed it, so I want to just give you the highlights here. It came out and it stated the following goal in the section on objectives to build a more lethal force. These were the goals. This is one of the goals. It said investments will prioritize development resilience survivable and federated networks and information ecosystems from the tactical level up to the strategic planning. Investments will also prioritize capabilities to gain and exploit information, deny competitors those same advantages, and enable us to provide attribution while defending against and holding accountable state or non-state actors during cyber attacks. Now, if you got lost in all of that, what that strategic point was saying is that the, United, the, the defense plan of the United States of America it was going to make massive investments in our communication systems, in protecting our communication systems, and denying our enemies to have the same abilities of our communication systems. For as long as there has been war and conflict, the military advantage has not been only with the side that had the biggest army and the greatest weapons. The strategic military advantage has often gone to the side with the best and most effective communications. Brothers and sisters, the church's most significant advantage is not the things we possess. Take all our things away and we've not lost any power. Brothers and sisters, your most powerful and effective weapon for the kingdom of God has nothing to do with your skills, what you have, or any ability that you can bring. The church's most significant advantage and each Christian's most powerful and effective weapon is our ability to pray. Communication with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who puts kings in power and takes kings out of power, the one who gives us breath and gives us life and, and knows the number of our days. You, through the blood of Jesus, have access to the throne of God. That's more powerful. That's more effective. That's more important than anything else we have. Do not see prayer as something you do after you try everything else. Too often we have said, well, all we can do now is pray. 
What we should be saying is now, brothers and sisters, before we do anything else, let us pray. You must see prayer as the labor the church has been called to as a first priority. To make supplications, to pray, to intercede for, to give thanksgivings for all people, for kings and for all those in high rank, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives, The glory of God may be known and the church may be advanced with holy hands without quarreling or bitterness. It is our first priority to pray, church. Men, it is your calling to pray. Let us be about the work of prayer. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.